Good morning, everybody. Wonderful to be here on uh, this fine last Thursday in January. And looking forward to our session with Gary Marr today from the Canada West Foundation. Uh, during this time of social and physical distancing, SACPA believes it's important to keep engaging with the public on issues of the day. And in order to do so, we are very thankful for the continuing support we receive from the University of Lethbridge, Shaw Spotlight and the Lethbridge Herald. Uh, today we have uh, our speaker Gary Marr from the Canada West Foundation uh, talking on setting a broad table of energy in the environment, how there has to be a merger of the two in order to be successful. Gary Marr was named President and CEO of the Canada West Foundation in April 2020. And an accomplished and respected leader, Gary brings deep experience in government and business and established expertise in CWF's key policy areas in natural resources, trade and investment, and human capital. Prior to joining the CWF, Gary served as the president and CEO of the Petroleum Service Association of Canada and the National Trade Association representing the service supply and manufacturing sectors within the upstream petroleum industry. Gary has a broad experience in government having served as a member of the Legislative Assembly of Alberta from 1993 to 2007. As an elected official, Gary held several cabinet portfolios, community development, health and wellness, education, environment, and international and intergovernmental re relations. Gary has served as the official representative of Alberta at the Canada Embassy in Washington, DC, and worked extensively with the Alberta energy sector on advocating issues in Washington, D.C. and many U.S. cities. Gary has also been appointed as an adjunct professor at the University of Alberta School of Business in Marketing, Business, Economy and Law. He's also an adjunct professor at the University of Cal Calgary's Haskane's Business School and is a public speaker at energy-related conferences. Thank you very much, Gary, for joining us today, and we very much look forward to your talk. Well, thank you very much, Annalise. That was a wonderful introduction. Uh, I have to say that when I accepted this uh, invitation of yours, uh, this was, you know, late last year. And in our exchange of emails with Laurie at SACPA, you know, we described the situation as fluid as it related to KXL. Uh, that's probably an understatement. Uh, and so let's, uh, let's go a bit back in history uh, on KXL. So when I went to uh, represent Alberta at the Canadian Embassy back in 2007, at that time, Canada provided about 11% uh, of U.S. foreign oil imports. And when I left in 2011, that number had grown to about 17%. So we were very important suppliers of energy to the United States. Today, that number is closer to 50%. So uh, almost half of the foreign oil imports of uh, the United States come from Canada, a large part of it from Alberta. So in, in terms of uh, barrels, it probably represents about somewhere around, you know, three and a half, three point seven million barrels of oil a day. And to put that in context, the world's production of oil ranges somewhere between, you know, 90 and 100 million barrels of oil a day. So in a very real sense, Canadian energy Alberta energy is important to the United States. Now, I want to give you uh, a bit of insight 
into the kind of case that we would have made at that time uh, to the United States as to why Canadian energy was important. So uh, I was there for the last part of the uh, of the uh, Bush administration, and uh, I was there at the inauguration for uh, Barack Obama in uh, 2009. Uh, and let let me say that uh, uh, one of the very interesting people I met was General Jim Jones. General Jones had been uh, the commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps. Uh, he was the head of CENTCOM uh, in Europe. Uh, he later became the national security advisor uh, to the president of the United States. And uh, I went in to see General Jones to talk about U.S. energy imports and the importance of Canadian supply. And here's the story that he told me. Uh, I walk into his office and he says, uh, son, uh, which all Marine Corps generals call a younger man, uh, he said, son, I understand that you want to talk about uh, KXL. And I said, yes, sir, which all younger men would say to a U.S. Marine Corps general. And he said, well, before you get started, I want to tell you this, that I wake up every morning and I ask myself, what source of oil in the world makes my soldiers safer? Oil that comes to us from a friend, a neighbor, an ally, a country whose geopolitical interests and values and uh, a democratic system, while not identical to the United States, are comparable to the U.S., uh, where that oil comes to us in a pipeline, which is a transportation system that doesn't move, and not a single member of the U.S. Armed Forces has to stand guard in order to make sure that that oil comes into the continental United States. Or oil that comes to us from countries whose geopolitical interests uh, may sometimes be antagonistic to that of the United States, sometimes even hostile. And that oil has to come to us uh, on a boat, and has to go through the 2.3-mile-wide Straits of Hormuz, past the coast of Somalia, uh, and has to be escorted by a U.S. naval fleet to make sure that it safely crosses an ocean in order to get to the United States. And I said, well, General, uh, my job is done. You clearly understand this. Uh, there's uh, no more that we really need to talk about. And I think this is the reason why Canadian oil has gone from 11% uh, to uh, nearly 50% of U.S. foreign oil imports is the, the importance of U.S. energy security. And uh, there is a recognition of that. And, you know, there was a recent uh, report that was put out um, by CNBC, MSNBC, I think, or yeah, one of the U.S. networks had cited a report uh, from a think tank in Washington that said the annual cost of military effort to secure energy supply from foreign places is about $81 billion a year. I'm reasonably confident that everybody with the Joint Chiefs of Staff would agree that that $81 billion could be better spent on something else. And so we are important to the United States in this regard. Um, KXL uh, was uh, a project, phase four of a project, to expand capacity uh, to move oil into the United States by uh, another 800,000 plus barrels a day. And uh, in my view, uh, there were really two errors 
on KXL uh, that were made um, back when the uh, this new line, this expansion of a line, was being proposed. Um, the original Keystone pipeline had an existing easement, but KXL did not use all of the existing easement. They wanted to build a new easement that would cut off some of the distance uh, of the length of the pipeline to ultimately get uh, Canadian energy uh, into the Gulf Coast refineries. Uh, so uh, I think it was an error not to use the existing right-of-way because when you were trying to create new rights-of-way, it created a whole host of people that could come out and say, well, this is, in a sense, uh, you know, uh, taking a green uh, you know, a piece of land and turning it into a pipeline easement. The second error, I think, was that uh, uh, TC Energy, TransCanada as it was then called, um, decided to use uh, Indian steel. Now, the steel was sourced from India. The pipeline, the pipes, actually would have been manufactured in the United States, a good thing. But you have to remember that back in 2009, the Obama administration had really started to go down the road of Buy America as uh, as a policy uh, in the United States. And so uh, I think that even though the manufacturer of that pipe would have been in the U.S., uh, using Indian steel uh, was an error, in my opinion. Now, I, I now want to go to uh, give you some insight as to what happens during the transition from uh, one president to another. So I've been fortunate enough to be part of two inaugurations. I was there for the inauguration of Barack Obama. I was also invited uh, back in 2016 and, and attended uh, the 2017 inauguration of Donald J. Trump. And I can give you some sense of what happens uh, when there's a change of president. So um, in, in 2008, I was there for the last part, uh, the last year of uh, President Bush's administration. And uh, what happened uh, was that there was an open seat. There was not a re-election uh, with an incumbent. Uh, it was two new candidates. Uh, and as we know, it was John McCain and Barack Obama. So what we did at the embassy and what we did for the Alberta Washington office, uh, which was embedded within the embassy and co-located there, uh, was we, we analyzed the campaign promises of both candidates, candidate McCain and candidate Obama. And we prepared briefing notes indicating what we should expect uh, in the event of a McCain win and in the event of uh, an Obama win. And I remember sitting in my office on the night of the election. The election was called uh, probably just after midnight um, Eastern, uh, Eastern Standard Time. Uh, and it was clear that uh, Barack Obama was the winner. And so I remember taking our McCain document and putting it in the shredder and hitting send on the, uh, on the Obama uh, briefing that went back to the government of Alberta. Uh, let me say that, uh, just as an aside, I drove home from the embassy uh, to my home uh, on Connecticut Avenue. It was probably about 1 o'clock in the morning. It was a remarkable evening. Uh, there are about 600,000 people that live in the District of Columbia, although about 2 million people work there. 
Uh, but the District of Columbia is relatively small. It's only 56 square miles. And uh, the, the largest uh, proportion of the population uh, are African-Americans. And as I was driving, there were bands in the street. There were people celebrating. There was, there was, uh, there was a great euphoria. And it wasn't, it, it wasn't uh, you know, dangerous, but it was joyful. And I must say that I had the observation that this might be the closest experience that I'll ever have to what it would have been like in Paris during the liberation at the end of the Second World War, that kind of unbridled joy going on through a city. It was a remarkable thing to watch. So um, what we had done uh, prior to the election, in addition to producing these two briefs, is we tried to identify those people that we thought might be appointed as cabinet secretaries or high-level uh, appointments by the new president. And we picked uh, 10 people for McCain, 10 people for Obama. Some of them, there were some overlaps. And uh, we did our best to endeavor to meet them. And we met with quite a number of them. And we were successful in meeting three people that ended up being high-level uh, uh, co contacts uh, within uh, the new Obama administration, including uh, General Jim Jones, who I've already referred to. Um, so let me say that that's what the Canadian Embassy has been doing for the last few months, is preparing for this transition, uh, doing its best to be connected to the people who will be, uh, to the best of their anticipation, uh, the important folks that'll be within the Biden administration. Um, and um, I give credit to Ambassador uh, Hillman and to James Rajat, who's Alberta's representative in the Alberta Washington office, for trying to do exactly that. And uh, it, it's, it's an enormous effort. The objective for our ambassador and all the people that are working double time and triple time in the embassy right now is to try and make sure that our Canadian ministers are the first ones in the door to meet with their counterparts uh, with the U.S. administration. And uh, it, it is positive, uh, in my view, that uh, the first uh, uh, meeting, uh, at least by telephone uh, or video conference, uh, of the president was with uh, the Prime Minister of Canada. And I can go back to that, but I should, we should never underestimate the importance of a good personal relationship that exists between two leaders that allow things to get done. Uh, and that in some cases, uh, because of a, a good relationship, you may end up with a situation where a leader will actually spend some of their own political capital within their own country in order to do something that's right for another country. And we'll go into more detail on that in a little bit. Um, Let's then look at what happened with KXL uh, really within the last 10 months or so. Uh, Premier Kenny made his announcement, I think, in uh, either February or March of 2020, indicating that he was putting money forward on Keystone XL. Uh, this was a risk. It was a calculated risk. And in, but in my view, and not everybody shares this view, uh, it was a prudent one, given the information that Premier Kenny had at the time. I think that it was an important signal to all that Alberta was not giving up on KXL. Uh, 
and that uh, had the Alberta government not done that, it would have been relatively easy for opponents of KXL in the United States to say, look, even the Alberta government's not behind this project. Um, secondly, uh, there were uh, MOUs uh, that were set up for First Nations uh, investment in the equity of, uh, of Keystone XL. I think that this was uh, a very positive move and part, and part of um, economic reconciliation with First Nations uh, to give them the opportunities to be uh, invested uh, in the equity of this project. Thirdly, um, it, I think it should be remembered that candidate Biden did not make his uh, commitment to the revocation of the presidential permit until May uh, of, uh, of 2020. Now, we know that in past years, during his time as vice president, uh, he uh, was uh, in line with uh, Barack Obama's uh, statement that uh, he would not support the Keystone XL pipeline. And uh, it, it is a legitimate criticism uh, or commentary to say uh, Joe Biden has never supported uh, Keystone XL in the past. Why would he do so? But as a campaign promise, he didn't do that until May of 2020. But a really key point is this. In, in my opinion, but for COVID, but for COVID, Donald Trump uh, may have been reelected successfully and may have been sworn in for his second term on January 20th of this year. Uh, so back at the time of February, March, it, it looked reasonably plausible that Donald J. Trump would win re-election, even with COVID, had he handled uh, the, uh, the uh, crisis correctly, uh, he may still have gotten elected uh, uh, president for a second term. Uh, people should remember that he actually got more votes than he did in 2016. 74 million Americans uh, still voted for Donald Trump in spite of all that. But uh, a Herculean effort on the part of the Democrats were able to bring out their voters uh, to bring electoral success uh, to uh, President Biden. So back in October and November, uh, I had opined that uh, a couple of things on, on Keystone XL. Uh, one is that, um, the, that it should be a priority to make sure that a presidential executive order revoking the presidential permit uh, on day one uh, was really a priority for, uh, for our uh, diplomatic efforts in Washington. Uh, secondly, that, and, and this goes to what uh, I think we can talk about more extensively, uh, is that KXL, the presidential permit on KXL, it has to be part of a broader table of issues to be dealt with. I think with reasonable confidence, people would say, well, you know, if it's just a matter of the one issue going to President Biden on day one, uh, Keystone, uh, are you in favor or are you against? The answer would have been fairly clear. The answer would be no, uh, we're going to revoke the permit. But uh, I could see a scenario where the United States and Canada working in concert on a whole host of environmental and energy issues could find a pathway for the approval of Keystone XL pipeline. So uh, Mr. Biden uh, has uh, indicated that he will rejoin 
uh, the obligations of the United States under the Paris Accord. Uh, he will be attending, uh, in whatever format it's in, uh, the Conference of the Parties, COP26, which is scheduled for Edinburgh in November of 2021. Uh, and I think that the whole issue of the merger of energy and environment uh, going forward on a North American basis makes a good deal of sense for both both uh, the Prime Minister of Canada and for the President of the United States. Uh, it seems to me that uh, you need to have a North American energy strategy that looks at competitiveness and making sure that we can go forward and have a competitive uh, energy supply uh, as part of what makes up uh, North America. So um, if we look, for example, at some of the things that, um, that we have in common, uh, you've got a Canadian government that has hydrogen strategy. You've got the United States very interested in moving to hydrogen. Uh, you have uh, a Canadian uh, policy on clean fuel standards. The United States uh, could be uh, working uh, to have a comparable CFS uh, in the United States. Uh, CAFE standards uh, in, in for automobile makers in the U.S. Uh, we should have, uh, we could have uh, a commitment to comparable ones there, uh, here in Canada, I should say. Uh, if you look at methane uh, regulations uh, in Saskatchewan and Alberta, they're far better than what you see in the United States. I think that this is something that uh, uh, the President of the United States would be interested in introducing uh, in the U.S. And so there are many things that you could tie together uh, for the two countries who have this tremendous trading relationship to make sure that we're competitive vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world. And if uh, President Biden were able to say, you know, we've got agreement with uh, the Prime Minister of Canada, the Government of Canada on the following matters, uh, and KXL uh, can perhaps be a part of it. Because we would rather get our oil, as General Jones would say, from a friend, a neighbor, an ally, uh, from a transportation system that doesn't move called a pipeline, rather than having to uh, bring it from uh, foreign destinations. We can no longer rely upon Venezuela or Mexico or a whole host of other places in the Middle East uh, to supply the oil that we'll need for not years to come, but for decades to come. And this is where some of the issues of definitions come into come into play. Uh, people talk about transition. I think the Canadian government, the Alberta government, Saskatchewan government, uh, we're all interested in energy transition. So too is the United States. But that doesn't mean we're going to be off oil in the next 10 years. If we look at credible sources like the International Energy Agency, we'll still be using oil for decades to come. And I think by putting uh, environmental policy in as part of it, we can make this case. One, energy is good. Two, it's emissions that are bad. So if we can deal with emissions by producing oil in a, in a way that produces fewer GHGs, if we can transition to other types of energies while still using oil, if we can move to hydrogen, uh, this would be a, a good thing. Uh, so there's a whole host of policy issues that should be wrapped up together, uh, in my view. Um, and uh, I, I think that, uh, uh, again, to the credit of the Canadian ambassador and to uh, Alberta's representative in Washington, James Rajat, from everything that I hear, 
you know, this is the kind of work that they've been doing, and I, I give them credit for that. Uh, and even though it has not resulted uh, in keeping uh, the revocation of the KXL presidential permit off the list on January 1, that doesn't mean that we should give up. Um, it, it will be make it more difficult, in my view, uh, to get KXL approved now, but uh, there may still be a pathway. And uh, let me point to these things. Uh, one, political cleavages. So I spoke with um, three uh, congressmen uh, who had firsthand knowledge of what happened at the first caucus meeting that the Democrats had following uh, the election uh, in uh, November of uh, 2020. And uh, they confirmed for me, uh, and I think it's now out in the public, uh, uh, in, in, you know, in public as well, that there was a shouting match that took place within that caucus meeting. And uh, it was led by uh, Congresswoman uh, Abigail Spanberger, who is, from my recollection, uh, the Congresswoman congressional representative from either the 7th or 8th district of Virginia and she called out Congresswoman AOC Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and she said that if you hadn't been talking about new monetary policy and this new green deal and so on and so forth she said that you know there would be 10 or 15 more members of of Congress in this caucus meeting uh, that would be part of the House of Representatives and so there are cleavages uh, within the Democratic Party itself. Uh, and that should come as no surprise. Uh, where you stand depends on where you sit in the United States. There's a broad difference between, um, you know, uh, the interests of states, for example, that produce energy, that, uh, you know, refine energy uh, versus uh, people who might live in the state of California, as an example. Um, secondly, uh, in the Senate, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to note that uh, the Senate flipped. So it's gone uh, based on the, uh, I think it was the January 6th runoffs in Georgia. Uh, two uh, Democratic senators were elected from there, uh, reversing the majority in the House. But it's a very slender majority. And, uh, you know, it will require every effort of uh, the Vice President, Kamala Harris, uh, to uh, try and keep her team together. Uh, the vice president, uh, formerly a U.S. senator, uh, serves as the what's referred to as the president pro temp of the, of the Senate. So she actually, uh, in the event of a tie, uh, casts the, uh, the deciding vote uh, in the U.S. Senate. And because it's such a, a slender majority, uh, I think that there will be issues that will be raised by people like Senator Joe Matchin, uh, who's a Democrat, uh, and uh, I think he is now the chair of the Senate Energy Committee. He comes from the state of West Virginia and uh, is a very pro-energy, pro-fossil fuel um, uh, member of the, uh, of the United States Senate. Um, secondly, uh, I think that there is a poll for Keystone XL that is happening within the United States itself. And so Canadians can say what they wish about how this was a bad decision for the United States, uh, but uh, precious few Canadians uh, cast a vote for a U.S. congressman or a U.S. senator 
or the President of the United States or uh, state uh, assembly uh, members and uh, you know of the, the, the state houses uh, in the US. But you've got in the United States, you know, the day after um, President Biden uh, signed off on the revocation of the presidential permit on KXL, you had the Wall Street Journal coming out with a very, very strong editorial board uh, comment that, that this was very, very bad and listed a whole host of reasons uh, relating from everything from energy security uh, to affordable energy. Uh, what will this mean for consumers? Where will refineries in the Gulf Coast get their supply from, if not from Canada? It, it was a very extensive uh, a case made in the United States by Americans for why Keystone uh, XL's presidential permit revocation was the wrong decision. Uh, you've got political leadership, uh, uh, Governor uh, Gianforte, from, uh, uh, who's a Republican from Montana, uh, is uh, not very happy with this result. Uh, you know, the Keystone XL um, pipeline would pass through Montana uh, instead of going through uh, North and South Dakota, uh, which is where the the original Keystone line goes through. Um, and so he recognizes the importance of connecting energy that's produced in the state of Montana to that line and uh, being able to take it to refineries. Uh, refineries. Uh, you've got labor unions uh, that are talking about the jobs that would be created both in the construction and in the ultimate operations. Um, uh, President Obama had... Uh, uh, support of unions as well, but they tended to be public service unions. Uh, the unions that supported uh, uh, President Biden were labor unions, and they are uh, very unhappy uh, with the loss of jobs, and they're making the arguments uh, with their networks that uh, those pipeline jobs are needed at a time when you're trying to recover the economy uh, in a post-COVID world. Uh, you've got Gulf Coast refineries that want the supply. You've got consumer groups that say, are saying, uh, you know, we uh, we want this. You've got the military, uh, which, as I said earlier, spends $81 billion a year, uh, secure by some estimates, uh, securing energy from foreign sources that would be better deployed in other areas. So um, that is what I know about Keystone XL. We have new issues with respect to Enbridge Line 5, where the governor of Michigan wants to terminate the operation of that pipeline uh, by the middle of May of this year. Um, and uh, that has a significant impact on Canada itself because Line 5, which goes from Canada into the U.S. and from Michigan back into Sarnia, Ontario, and then also connects to Line 9, which goes into Montreal, about almost 50% of the crude oil consumed in Ontario comes through Line 5. And about two-thirds of the crude oil used in the province of Quebec comes from Line 5. So this is a serious issue. And we can, you know, uh, if people want to ask questions about that issue, it's different from KXL in the sense that it's not stopping new production from coming into the U.S., but stopping an existing supply uh, that makes it uh, uh, a very important uh, issue for us to deal with. I'm not sure that Governor Whitmer actually has the constitutional jurisdiction to do what she wants to do. Having said that, it is still uh, an important issue 
uh, for uh, Canadian policymakers uh, and advocates uh, to be uh, making sure that uh, Enbridge's Line 5 continues to operate uh, in, in the safe, efficient manner that it has been for many, many years. So I'll close my comments uh, there, and I will be happy to entertain the questions that will be uh, moderated by Annalise. Thank you very much. Fantastic talk. Thank you very much, Gary. Um, we've got quite a few questions already, so I'll jump right in. Our first question comes from Terry Shillington. Gary, if U.S. oil consumption is reduced substantially, as environmentalists hope, do you think there would still be a need for the KXL pipeline capacity? So this is a very interesting question because uh, here's something that's happened between Australia and Germany. Australia and Germany have entered into an MOU for hydrogen supply. And it, it actually solves an interesting conundrum, uh, uh, a chicken and egg situation, that you can't produce hydrogen if you don't have a customer, and you can't seek customers if you don't produce hydrogen. So by signing this MOU, Germany's agreed to buy hydrogen when Australia produces it. So it strikes me that you're going to need infrastructure uh, in one sh way, shape, or form, regardless of whether you're moving oil or prospectively moving hydrogen. So, you know, to me, if we're looking at the issue, again, in a broader table, uh, we might say, look, Canada and the United States should enter into such an MOU, uh, and then uh, you could produce very high-quality, affordable hydrogen in the Western Canada sedimentary basin. Let's go back to KXL. Let's approve it. Let's make sure that we manufacture it in such a way that it is safely able to move hydrogen, the, the molecules in hydrogen are quite a bit smaller and so require different metallurgical requirements. I'm not an engineer, but this is what I'm told. Um, and let's, let's build the pipeline, let's coat it properly, and we'll put oil in it at first. But when the United States is ready to switch to a lower GHG energy form like hydrogen, and we're able to produce it, then we're gonna, we're gonna make that transition from moving oil in KXL and moving hydrogen instead. So th there are a whole host of things that we should think about, but infrastructure is still required regardless of the type of energy that we use. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Related to pipelines, we could probably increase capacity by at least 30% if we upgraded the bitumen just enough to flow th to flow through existing pipelines without using dilutant. What are your thoughts? Well, I think Knut's correct. I mean, uh, if we did a partial upgrade, uh, so here's the issue is that uh, uh, you have to look at the specific gravity of the oil that you're trying to move. So uh, heavy oil, uh, it, it means that it, it, it's, it, it's not as easy to flow. So if you look, I've got uh, on my shelf here uh, some uh, bitumen and if I, if I put it over my head, it wouldn't come out. Uh, I, would, uh, I wouldn't be able to spill it out. You have to add diluent uh, to make sure that it, it is thin enough that it can flow through. So it's not like peanut butter and it's more like honey. And from honey, you can make it even lighter by putting in more diluent and so on and so forth. So it makes it flow easier. So Knut is uh, correct uh, in this. So I agree that uh, this would be a partial solution so that instead of 30% of your pipeline being filled with 
uh, diluent or dilbit, as it's sometimes referred to, uh, you could fill it with oil instead and thereby increase the volume of oil that you move in an existing pipeline. Our next question comes from Mark Goodall. Would you, would you comment on Kenny's threat to the U.S. through his rhetoric, bringing forth litigation, etc.? Will this not be counterproductive by intimidating the Americans? I can completely understand uh, the uh, the Premier's uh, uh, sort of response on this. He he talked about it as a gut punch, and it is a gut punch. And I think that uh, it's important to uh, to understand that perspective uh, that uh, the Premier believes that this is very very important uh, for the prosperity of the province. Uh, I don't I don't I don't disagree with his uh, with his. Uh, his rhetoric. I think it's. I think it's a genuine uh, attempt. But we've also got to, as I said, broaden the table to make sure that uh, we can make the case that you know, again, energy is good. It's uh, emissions that are bad. The premier uh, back in I think it was November of last year uh, acknowledged this as it related to um, uh, attraction of capital. So he talked about ESG. Uh, and that ESG was an important uh, thing to keep a note of because that's where capital markets are putting their money. And he said, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So uh, while, his, uh, while his rhetoric is completely understandable, at the same time, I know that groups like Invest Alberta with the Alberta government are very focused on creating the right kind of uh, ESG uh, metrics uh, that will allow us to go to capital markets and ultimately uh, to uh, c- customers of our oil and say, we produce this uh, at the highest uh, standards in the world. Uh, and, and so if you're going to go off oil, the Canadian barrel is the last barrel in the market that you should get rid of. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's got to be a two-pronged approach. Um, and uh, I, I think that the federal government uh, and uh, the Alberta, Saskatchewan, provincial governments are working on this. Uh, for those that are interested, um, you'll see on the Canada West uh, Foundation website that we did a, um, a webinar with um, uh, Federal Energy Minister Seamus O'Regan, uh, Energy Minister uh, Sonny Savage from Alberta, and Energy Minister um, uh, Bronwyn Ayer from Saskatchewan. The, the governments, those three governments, are working very, very hard on on, uh, on on joint projects that are reflecting this merger of public policies of energy, the environment, and economic development. Because you can't develop any kind of economy without access to affordable, reliable energy. You can't produce any kind of energy, including renewables, without having some impact on the environment. And you cannot... Uh, you cannot produce any kind of energy, uh, uh, with, you know, uh, you know, uh, without um, without reference to the environment and the economy. So, um, I have some hope. Uh, we'll we'll have that webinar up and running for people to uh, take a look at uh, in the next couple of days. Uh, and I'd I'd invite you to look at that because the media always focuses on where governments uh, disagree and are disagreeable but they don't focus on good work that's being done. And we should never underestimate, as I said, the importance of good relationships between people that 
even though they may disagree on things, can work together uh, to try and accomplish a common goal. Our next question kind of, um, I think you kind of answered it already, but I'll ask it anyways by Mary Shillington. If Kenny has a clear, realistic energy slash environmental plan, would this strengthen the Canada-U.S. discussion about these issues? Yes, and I, I think that it, it can't be just Premier Kenny. It's got to be in concert with the federal government. So uh, let's go back to, I don't know, Mulroney and Reagan. Uh, there were some issues that they dealt with that were pretty remarkable. They, they got a free trade agreement done, a, a Canada-U.S. free trade agreement. But on the environmental front, you know, people talked about acid rain back uh, in that time. We don't talk about acid rain anymore. Both leaders of Canada and the United States got along very, very well. And uh, they recognized that uh, the deposition of socks and knocks on land and water caused the pH of water to go from 7 to 5. Fish wouldn't live in that environment. Crops wouldn't grow in soil that had this uh, deposition. Uh, we found technology that uh, put scrubbers uh, so that this, these emissions would not be deposited on our land and water. Nobody talks about acid rain anymore. And then we think about the Montreal Protocol. Uh, you know, uh, in the 1980s, people focused on you know, the thinning ozone layer and that sheep were going blind in the southern hemisphere uh, because of too much ultraviolet light coming through the atmosphere. Uh, but we figured out that you know, that uh, chlorofluorocarbons uh, and, um, uh, you know, refrigerants and aerosol propellants were the cause of this. We figured out different ways to produce aerosol propellant, and uh, we figured out different ways uh, to use for refrigerants. Nobody talks about the thinning ozone layer anymore. And so uh, two leaders that are well-intentioned, that have a common agenda, uh, they may disagree with things from time to time, uh, but they can get lots accomplished. And so uh, it, it won't be just Premier Kenny. It won't be just Premier Mo. Uh, you know, it, it's got to involve uh, a Team Canada approach. And, uh, but there is an important role still for the premiers to engage uh, with their counterparts in the United States. It should be noted that 35 U.S. states describe Canada as their number one trade destination. And all of the provinces of Canada, uh, with the exception of Manitoba, describe the United States as their number one trade destination. And so uh, from the subnational government engagement uh, between Alberta and counterparts in the United States it is as important as the uh, subnational engagement that Atlantic premiers have with uh, North uh, Northeastern governors. Uh, and so... Uh, Good things can happen if we coordinate with each other, but it cannot be uh, a one-off approach. It has to be a Team Canada approach, in my view. Our next question comes from Laurie Schultz. What is the status of existing pipeline capacity to the U.S.? Well, uh, so I can send you this map, Laurie. It's, uh, <laughs> it's a pretty, it's a pretty extensive map. Uh, it, it, you know, it's, it's in the millions of barrels, but we also move oil by rail. We also barge oil. Uh, there's all kinds of ways of moving oil into the United States. Pipelines are the most important. They're the safest. I mean, if uh, if we're looking at, you know, the equation of 
by pipeline or by rail, uh, I, I would make this argument. Pipelines never go through the middle of town. Uh, train lines always go through the middle of town. So what's a safer way of moving a volatile substance uh, safely? It is by, uh, uh, by pipeline. Uh, just uh, ask the you know, people about the tragic consequences of Lac Magantique uh, in Quebec. So, um, so we have millions of, of, of barrels a day of capacity in pipelines, and by and large it moves safely uh, and efficiently um, you know, and it, it, it's it's a remarkable system, and it should be noted that you know Barack Obama, for all his bluster about um, you know about KXL, thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of pipeline were approved under his administration for the movement of oil and gas throughout the United States uh, during his eight years uh, tenure as president of the United States. So um, it, it is the safest way to to move, and again. We still need infrastructure, uh, even if we move to a hydrogen economy. We'll still need infrastructure. So, um, uh, I think I think pipelines are pretty darn important. Our next question comes from Maria Fitzpatrick. Why would we want to sell crude to the U.S. and buy it back at a much higher rate in Ontario and Quebec? Why is the focus not on providing our own processed oil for all of Canada? Boy, to ask the question is to answer it. Uh, it's, you know, it is uh, remarkable that uh, Suncor tried a uh, a pilot project where they moved oil uh, from Alberta to on the uh, uh, on the Trans Mountain pipeline, which goes out through the port of Vancouver, and loaded up what's called uh, either an Aframax or Panamax tanker which then sailed <laughs> through the Panama Canal and then back up to refineries in eastern Canada. And that doesn't make any sense at all. So, uh, so the, 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 the question uh, is, uh, is, is a conundrum. We do need uh, national infrastructure to supply Canadians with Canadian oil. Canadians would say that that's a very good idea. But we have so many barriers to getting uh, national infrastructure done. I, I sometimes describe myself as old as the Trans-Canada uh, Highway because that's the last piece of national infrastructure that was completed, and it was back in 1962. So I don't know how many people can name a piece of national infrastructure that has been done since then. I don't think there has been one. And having a pipeline that you know, so that we can obviate the need for uh, importing uh, oil that comes to us either um, as crude or as uh, a finished product like gasoline or diesel from the United States. Uh, that's an excellent, excellent question uh, to put to uh, policy um, uh, policymakers uh, in central Canada and particularly in Quebec and Ontario. Uh, excellent question. Uh, let's get a national infrastructure done that supplies Canadians with Canadian energy. And while we're at it, uh, we should be thinking about things like northern corridors, where we could, you know, with uh, thinning Arctic ice, uh, Russians are using the northern seaway route to move gas supplies uh, by tanker uh, into Europe. Uh, we should be thinking about using the Northwest Passage uh, for the movement of material 
because if you don't use the Northwest Passage, you risk a loss of sovereignty. Uh, that should be of significant concern to Canadians. And the way that you can move oil safely uh, through the Northwest Passage uh, is there, there are three, uh, three companies that I'm aware of that have a solidification process. Uh, I have some samples of it on my desk here uh, where uh, people may have heard of Canapux. Canapux is a technology that is owned by uh, Canadian National Railways. And you take the light ends out of heavy oil and you turn it into something that looks like a puck. You inject it with air. And so uh, if you drop it in water, let's say that you've got a container ship, and uh, a bulk container, I should say, and you, you, you have a spill, uh, it just floats on the surface. It doesn't interact with the ambient environment, and you can just scoop it up and recover it. So uh, there are ways of safely moving energy supply uh, through a very sensitive environmental area, the high Arctic. Uh, I lived and worked there uh, many, many years ago. And it's a beautiful part of the country that very, very few people, very few Canadians ever get to see. I highly encourage people uh, to think about spending some vacation time in the Arctic because it is a remarkable jewel of Canada. Uh, but we should be thinking about using it. And we need to think about what the Northwest Passage means to being able to get energy supply to refineries, heavy oil refineries in Rotterdam and equally to Shandong, China. Um, our next question comes from James Byrne. Renewables, renewables investments are much safer than investments in bitumen. Why not argue for diversification of our energy supply? Renewables provide a clean electric supply to produce green hydrogen. So this is a, a green hydrogen is an interesting term. Uh, it depends on how you produce the hydrogen. Green hydrogen is, uh, uh, people talk about green hydrogen, blue hydrogen. It's a bit of a red herring, if I could use that expression, uh, because depending on how you produce the green hydrogen, it may actually have a higher GHG profile uh, than, uh, than you might think. So as an example, uh, you know, you could produce ethanol, but ethanol, uh, as you know, assuming that you're using say, cellulosic ethanol created from uh, switchgrass or corn or what have you, actually uses about nine barrels of water uh, to produce a barrel of ethanol. Uh, you compare that to, um, you know, uh, oil sands uh, to produce a, a barrel of oil sands fuel. Um, I think they're down to two barrels of water but most of that water is recycled, like 90% of that water is recycled. So the actual amount of water that goes into producing a barrel of uh, oil sands derived transportation fuel is dramatically less than it is to produce ethanol. In terms of wind and solar, uh, you know, there are still environmental impacts on wind and solar. Uh, you know, uh, you require, uh, because of its intermittent nature, that i.e. the sun doesn't always shine, uh, the wind doesn't always blow. Uh, it bespeaks uh, of the need for um, uh, storage of energy, uh, and that generally means batteries. I mean, there's other ways of storing energy as well, but it generally means batteries. Those batteries require the mining of rare earths uh, to provide the uh, the lithium uh, and uh, other such uh, rare earths, maybe vanadium, uh, to be able to produce it. So uh, even renewable energy has uh, environmental impact. 
I don't discount the importance of renewable energy. If you look at the cost of solar panels, it's gone down dramatically over the last 10 years, uh, but it still doesn't have uh, the uh, uh, the um, the energy density that a barrel of oil does. So as we make the transition, uh, technologies will improve. I'm not opposed to renewable energies, but this kind of transition will take many, many years. Uh, so I agree with the transition to renewables. Geothermal would be another good one uh, because geothermal allows you to have energy uh, that is not intermittent. Once you drill your hole uh, in the ground and you're able to recover the heat uh, that is there, there are companies here in Alberta and Saskatchewan that are doing that now. It's remarkable technology. But once you do that, you'll have that energy forever. And it doesn't require, uh, unlike wind turbines, which have a lifespan of maybe 25 years and solar panels that will eventually degrade um, uh, geothermal energy. And I would argue uh, small modular reactors uh, would be an important a part of the transition as well. Our next question comes from Knut Peterson. Although transport by rail is slightly more risky than pipeline, it does provide a quick non-permanent alternative while waiting for eventual pipeline. What happened to those railway tankers? Uh, so I don't know what the answer is. I, I do know that uh, Meg Energy uh, is one of the companies that actually went and bought uh, tankers um, uh, you know, a, a number of years ago. I, I don't know what our capacity is for that. There's a company called Altex in Alberta that uh, I think has a capacity for moving about something in the range of about 250,000 barrels a day of oil by rail. There are loading facilities in places like um, uh, Hardesty, Alberta, and I can't remember where the other big one is. Um, but so the capacity's there, uh, and I expect that with this decision on uh, KXL, uh, that um, that the rail companies will be busier uh, moving uh, crude by rail than than they would have been uh, last year as the demand increases for it. So you can, you, can take, you can take a barrel of oil, you can move it from uh, the loading facility in, in, in Hardesty, and you can get it uh, to Port Arthur, Texas, you know, um, and, and a, lot of the, a lot of that oil is moved that way uh, into the Gulf Coast. Um, and then the next question is from Laurie Schultz again. Would hydrogen energy be a viable Sorry, I skipped one. It's Laurie Schultz, but with respect to building the infrastructure for hydrogen energy, is investment happening to build such infrastructure? Is Alberta investing? And would hydro energy be a viable skill transition for our Alberta oil and gas workers? So I'm going to answer the second question first. I think the answer to that is yes. There are uh, a lot. You don't have to go back to school. Uh, you know, if you're a, you know, if you're an engineer, you don't have to go back to learn how to be a hydrogen engineer. The first question, uh, though, speaks to the issue of the chicken and egg problem that we have. Uh, who will produce hydrogen until you've got a customer? Who will buy hydrogen until, uh, you know, you've got a producer? So as an example, uh, you know, for this is the oldest startup in the world, Ballard Fuel Systems in, 
in the, the lower mainland of British Columbia. Ballard's been making fuel cells for a long, long, long time. But there is nobody that produces the hydrogen that is of the quality required by, um, by those Ballard cells. They, I think they get their hydrogen from California. And the reason why is because unless you have a very pure form of hydrogen, um, my understanding, uh, as has been explained to me, is that it will degrade the fuel cell if you have impurities in it. So, um, it, but there is a huge opportunity for hydrogen. You look at um, the company uh, New Flyer Industries. Uh, so this is a bus manufacturer uh, in, uh, in Winnipeg. They have gone out and purchased, I think, MCI, which is a bus manufacturer in the United States. And they have about 30 or 35,000 municipal transportation vehicles running on hydrogen throughout North America. So the, 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 uh, the, the buses that you saw that were being uh, featured during the, uh, highlighted during the, uh, the Olympics in, uh, in Vancouver uh, were hydrogen buses that were manufactured uh, in Winnipeg and operating in Vancouver. Uh, and I think they used Ballard fuel cells, but the hydrogen doesn't come from Canada. So uh, you, you, we've got to have a sufficient push and pull uh, to make sure that that kind of investment actually happens. And to me, the way you get it done is, like Germany and Australia, you have to have a big buyer that signs an MOU that says, when you produce it, we'll buy it from you. Our next question comes from James Byrne. Ozone, you are glossing over huge costs in society for, for adaptation to skincare and other health and eco ecosystem costs. Same with oil. It costs us more in health and environmental dollars. Your comments? Well, um, so I don't, I don't disagree that there are other costs that need to be taken into account. I mean, this is a, uh, a public policy issue that, it, it, you know, is, it touches on many, many different areas. And so um, that's why I say, uh, you know, if you're looking at it from the point of view of a... Uh, uh, a Venn diagram. The public policy areas of the economy, energy, and the environment, you might want to put in healthcare, uh, which James referred to as part of it. Uh, largely, those three spheres of public policy 30 years ago were completely independent of each other. And now, if we're thinking about how we are able to uh, move forward, uh, those, th those public policy areas have to overlap in our Venn diagram. And it's that sweet spot in the middle that we need to focus on. So I, I don't disagree with James. Uh, but we should know that uh, the quality of life as a result of hydrocarbons that has resulted in an improvement of our quality of life than it was 50 years ago in this country or even 20 years ago in this country is because of the development of natural resources. Now, must we move forward on a go-forward basis to developing those natural resources as uh, as, uh, you know, environmentally and sustainably responsibly as possible? The answer is yes, but we should not discount uh, the value that hydrocarbons have brought to the quality of life. And in other parts of the world, I would say the same thing. Uh, the, the ability to have affordable, reliable energy, regardless of where you live in the world, uh, and in particular, if you look at China and India, how they've lifted uh, hundreds of millions of people out of energy poverty, it has actually been a miraculous thing, it, not possible without the use of hydrocarbons. Now, 
I'll say this about hydrocarbons. The Stone Age did not end because we ran out of rocks. The Stone Age ended because a better technology displaced it. The fossil fuel age will not end because we've run out of oil and gas. But someday it, there will be a greater displacement of a different technology. What we cannot say with certainty is does that happen in 10 years? It won't. Will it happen in 20, 30, 50 years, 100 years? We don't know. But, um, but someday the age of fossil fuels will end because a better technology, cheaper, cleaner, will replace fossil fuels. But that could be many generations away from today. wasn't so long ago when we did think that oil was going to run out, right? That was a big crisis when I was, uh, when I was a kid. Um, we have, um, we're right at, uh, we're already past our hour. We do have some more questions in the queue, but I want to be respectful of your time. And is it okay if we asked a couple more questions or of, what's your time limit like? Of course it is. I've got, I've always got time for important people. So yes. Wonderful. Okay. Our next question comes from Knud Peterson. SACPA had Carlo Dade and Sharon Sun speak on AgriTrade on January 7th. What are your thoughts on agricultural, agriculture playing a role in our energy future? Biogas, for example. Well, I think uh, I, I think there's, I haven't really thought about biogas. It never struck me as being sensible to use food as a fuel, uh, and yet that's exactly what's been done in the United States. And so the price of corn in Iowa, you know, went from two dollars a bushel to you know six dollars a bushel, and it has increased. And for the purposes of making ethanol uh, a biofuel, now if you're using uh, algae as the source of your cellulose, then that's better. If you're using switchgrass or if you're using, um, you know, uh, wood waste from, uh, you know, from a from a, a, a sawmill, that's okay. If you're using, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, waste that would otherwise uh, be useless and turning it into a biofuel. That's okay, but it never made sense for me that you would ever use food uh, as the source of your uh, cellulose uh, for making a fuel. Um, but in, in a broader sense, I would argue that we should have um, a Western Canadian uh, offset market, a carbon offset market. And you could use the practices in agriculture and forestry to actually create carbon credits and if you want to try and get to net zero by 2050, in many ways, the technology doesn't exist today for us to go to that, but it will require, if you want to get to that stage, in transition, you're going to need carbon offsets. And so some of the practices in agriculture are really remarkable. Uh, same thing in the forestry business. We shouldn't discount the possibility of doing this. Let me give you an example. Uh, Corsia. Uh, now, I, I probably don't remember what the full title for it is, is the carbon offset reduction something something. And it's an agreement among airlines in the world that they're going to keep their passenger, international passenger jets at the same uh, GHG levels as they were in 2019, the base level, by 2025. You can get some efficiencies from, 
you know, changing the kind of plane, going from a wide body to a narrow body, changing the kind of engines. But ultimately, it will mean that you have to buy carbon offsets in order to make that commitment by 2025 if you're going to expand your routes. So if, if you created a Western Canadian offset market, a carbon offset market based on practices in agriculture and forestry, you might be able to create a carbon market uh, that you could then sell those credits to Lufthansa or United Airlines or British Airways. Uh, you could create a huge marketplace uh, for what we produce uh, here in Alberta in terms of uh, offsets. So, I, um, so there is a connectivity between agriculture uh, and energy and trying to get to a net zero by 2050. Our last question of the day comes from Laurie Schultz. It's a follow-up question to, cl to, to clarify my question about pipeline capacity. Could you comment on how we ensure line five and nine is not shut down? So uh, let me say that it's unlikely that it will be shut down because as I said, it's one thing uh, to be able to uh, uh, stop new production from going into the system versus cutting off your current supply. So to me, to make sure that uh, line five remains open, uh, it, it's, it's a federal jurisdiction, not a state level one. Um, and uh, I, I, in anticipation of a question like that, there's an agreement that was actually signed in 1977. It's a treaty, an agreement between the government of Canada and the government of the United States concerning transit pipelines. So what, what, so the uh, Line 5 has been in, in operation since the 1950s. This agreement was signed off by, uh, uh, by Pierre Trudeau. Ultimately, it had to go to the Senate for ratification uh, because it actually says here in Article 10, this agreement is subject to ratification uh, and instruments of ratification shall be exchanged in Ottawa. One of the people who voted in favor of this was then Senator Joe Biden. So um, this, this agreement will be one of the things that will, uh, in my view, uh, allow us to continue the operations of Line 5. The permits for Line 5 are federal permits. The regulator for Line 5 is a federal regulator. And so I don't think that Governor Whitmer actually has uh, the legal authority to stop the operations of Line 5. I think she's doing it for a political reason, and that uh, my speculation is that her attorney general uh, is courting the um, uh, the environmental uh, progressives uh, and may take uh, a run at the governor's chair herself. And so I think that the bluster well, I shouldn't I shouldn't discount it as bluster, but. But the rhetoric being put forward by Governor Whitmer is to try and shore up her, the left flank of her support against a potential challenger. Um, now, if, if I were in Michigan, if I were running a campaign for this, I'd be doing a calculus of what the cost of gasoline would be if you stopped. So Line 5 goes into the Marathon Refinery, in, uh, which is in Detroit, and I've been to that facility. Uh, if I were running the marathon facility, I would be doing a calculation as to what the price of gasoline would be if you had to truck it in from refineries like Valero in the Gulf Coast. Uh, 
uh, it would cause uh, a huge disruption to cut off your existing supply. And so, um, uh, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be focused on trying to build a pipeline that actually connects Western Canada with Eastern Canada so that we don't find ourselves in the situation of having our own energy security being jeopardized um, by uh, a potential closure of a U.S. pipeline that moves oil back into Canada that goes into refineries in Sarnia and Montreal. Thank you. That's it for the questions. We've got quite a, a few thank you comments. Impressed by your knowledge of both sides of the picture. Thank you for an informative talk by Mark Goodall. Uh, Laurie Schultz, thank you for your excellent presentation on a very complex issue. It, I very much appreciate the historical information on KeyXL and the context of the relationship between Canada and the US. And then Beth Mundell and Knut both thanking you as well. Um, before we end the live stream, I'd like to ask, do you have a take-home message for our viewers today? Look, I'm a guy that's an eternal optimist. I never look at a glass as half full or half empty. I always think I'm halfway to my next glass. And so, uh, you know, as we go through an energy transition, I want to be optimistic. And I want to say that, uh, you know, that uh, governments are trying their very best in some ways to achieve the same goals. Uh, the Kenny government, the Mo government, the, 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 you know, the government of Canada, uh, the, the Biden administration, we will have disagreements. There's no ifs and or buts about that. But if, if uh, leaders can get along and if you can work together and if you can look at North America as a trading block that has to be competitive vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the world, uh, then I think we'll come to the right kinds of conclusions about energy the economy um, and uh, and the environment and and for that uh, I want to say I am always optimistic. Wonderful! Thank you so much for your time for your time spent in preparing for this. Sakpa is very appreciative. And um, before we end the live stream, just to let people know, next week's topic is uh, COVID nineteen vaccines. Are there any reasons to be concerned about? A efficacy and long-term safety by Dr. Trushar Patel. And I hope you join us then. And thanks very much, everybody, for joining in today.